in our series in the book of Hosea, or what you might think of as the gospel according to the prophet Hosea because of the bad news and good news presentation of Hosea's material. Uh, More than once, uh, we learn of Israel's sins and guilt and judgments that will surely come to her, uh, followed by a remarkable reversal and demonstration of mercy and grace by the Lord in what appears to be a hopeless situation. And so we started this uh, series after just just a couple of weeks of sort of in- introduction, uh, looking at uh, chapter 1, verse, verse 2, through chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, this really is the first picture of portrait of the bad news. Uh, but that is followed up in chapter 1, verse 10, a section that runs down through chapter 2, verse 1, with a section on good news. Uh, And it begins with, you'll notice there in verse 10 of chapter 1, with that contrast word, yet. So it's sort of saying, this is all going to happen, and yet the Lord is going to do this. And in fact, it's such a hard transition from this first section uh, and what takes place in verse 10 uh, that I mentioned that in the Hebrew Bible, this verse 10 is actually considered to be the first verse of chapter 2. So they actually treat it almost like as a chapter break because the, there's such a, a stark contrast between these two sections. Uh, and then we, we looked at uh, chapter 2, verse 2, down through chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, this is what we covered last week. <clears throat> we looked at a couple of things. One was the anatomy of Israel's idolatry um, in the first, uh, really verse 2 down to verse 5, said, made some comments uh, about idolatry and the nature of idolatry. We said basically at least three things. One is that idolatry always involves deep personal betrayal. Uh, And so this disobedience on Israel's part was not just some sort of a legal breach or or a a legal um, uh, infraction, but it was really, this is as much about a a cruel disloyalty in the relationship. Um, uh, the Israelites turning to false gods and at the, at the same time sort of rejecting her God uh, and betraying his love. So sin against the Lord and idolatry are, is something that's, you should take it very seriously, but it's also something the Lord takes very personally. Uh, so this involves deep personal betrayal. Second thing we mentioned is idolatry always involves misplaced gratitude. We saw this in Gomer as she gave her adulterous lovers the credit for her sustenance and uh, her prosperity, uh, rather than to her generous husband. And again, this is what happens with idolatry. We, we covet the glory that belongs exclusively to God, uh, offering praise to ourselves or to someone else other than the Lord for what we have and what we enjoy. Of course, Romans chapter 11, Paul reminds us, he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Uh, Amen. And then over in Acts chapter 17, verse 24, Paul says this as he's preaching in Athens to, uh, the text actually says, a city full of idols. So this idolatry was rampant in, in Paul's day. And he says there in verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God 
if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and, uh, and have our being, or as NAS uh, New American Standard says, and exist. For in him we live and move and exist. So it's interesting as Paul's addressing the idolatry of his day, what he does is he goes back to creation and makes it very clear the Lord is the one who made all these things. <laughs> the Lord is the one who gives you all these things. He's the one that provides your sustenance. He's the one that has put things in place. And the thing that we forget when we commit idolatry is that the Lord has done that, right? That this stuff really belongs to Him. And so one of the things that um, Gomer was guilty of, the nation of Israel was guilty of, is giving credit where credit was not due uh, and seeing the source of those blessings as coming from something or someone other than God himself. Uh, the third thing we noted about idolatry is that idolatry always involves a form of spiritual amnesia. There's a forgetfulness that takes place when we, um, we commit idolatry, and this is what Israel did. They, the text says they forgot God. They, they forgot uh, the one who lavished his love on on that nation, uh, Israel forgot him who brought her out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Uh, and that was not, as we said, it was not accidental. It was a sort of a, a, it was a deliberate sort of putting God out of their minds. Uh, so there's culpability that's going on here. Now, this is something we, we mentioned that God had warned Israel about time and time again. Uh, back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, I think this was a passage we, we I sort of skipped over last week. Uh, but makes this point, says, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you, great and splendid cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and honed cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery." You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the, of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in, in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and He will wipe you off the face of the earth. <laughs> so, this is, not, this is not something that uh, Israel was ignorant of. And, 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 and let's just be honest, when we sin in this way against the Lord, it, it's not accidental, right? I mean, it's not because we didn't know. Usually it's because we chose to not remember, right? We, we just put these things out of our minds. Our, our idols sort of crowd those, those things out, but we are, we are fully accountable for that. So again, this also happens with idolatry. We fail to bring to mind who God is and what he's done and worship the gifts while ignoring the giver rather than worshiping the giver while responsibly enjoying the gifts, right? Because we're supposed to enjoy the gifts, right? Isn't that what Solomon says over in Ecclesiastes? You enjoy the wife of your youth, enjoy this, enjoy that, enjoy this. It's just, but don't worship it, right? That's a, that's a whole other matter. Enjoy it, be a good steward of it, enjoy it responsibly, but never forget to fear the Lord and keep his commands, Right, that's the, sort of the summation that Solomon gives to us at the end of his, his uh, sermon there. So we looked at that, and then in verses 6 down to 13, we saw the Lord's just or righteous response to Israel's idolatry. And just that last verse there in verse 13 of that section, he says, I will punish her 
for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. That is to say, God will kindly put in place gracious uh, hindrances or obstacles so that his people will not continue in the delusion of idolatry. And he will remove and destroy the very blessings given by his hand that were erroneously attributed to other gods, returning his people, in a sense, to the state in which they were before he found them. So you may remember Ezekiel's message. I mean, I would love for us just, it's a, I think we've actually at one point read this chapter in one of our Sunday, uh, Sunday um, uh, services where we were doing scripture reading, but read the entirety of Ezekiel 16, but it's, it's, it's pretty overwhelming. Uh, it, it would be good for you to just, if you've never read that, just jot that chapter number down, Ezekiel 16, and just read that. Just sit down and read that. It's, it's, um, it's amazing. It's, 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 it's humbling. Uh, I'll just read a, just the first part of this, just to give you a sense of what the Lord is saying here. When, he, when He's basically saying, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring discipline in such a way that it sort of takes you back to where you were before I, in my sovereignty, chose you and decided to do this work in you. He says there in verse 1, this is Ezekiel 16, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Okay, <laughs> That's not a, you know, you, it's not like complimentary. You know, it's like, you know, that's a, your mama and your daddy, you know, it's just like, it's, these are not compliments. It's just showing the unworthiness, really, uh, of, of this whole thing. Uh, verse 4, as for your birth on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare." Then I passed by you and saw saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord. I mean, think a, a, a lot of that language there is, this, is that, that those are the kinds of things that Hosea's again, he's, he's tying back to these, uh, particularly back to the, to the books of, of Moses, to the Pentateuch. Um, tying back into this history of Israel and, and, and God's sovereign work in forming her and calling her and this, this covenant that he makes and the very fact that he says here that you became mine. We've seen that even in Hosea, that you are my people, not my people, these kinds of, of things. But then you'll notice, too, the references here to just to, to nakedness, to just basically you had nothing. I mean, you're out there completely abandoned. You, ha- you would have died. You, you would have from exposure. You had nobody to care for you, nobody to clothe you, nobody to feed you. And what the Lord 
basically says here in Hosea is that because of Israel's rampant idolatry, that he's going to judge them, and, and it's going to be a national uh, punishment. And this is going to be Israel's sad portion, that she will, she will experience this desolation and thirst and hunger and waste and nakedness and shame. So, so that is, that's, that's again, that's, that's bad, right? That's bad, bad news. Uh, but this morning, we get another round of good news. So I want to pick up here in, in verse uh, 14. It says, Therefore, behold, this is Hosea 2, Therefore, I, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Then I will give her vineyards from there in the valley of Accor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi and will no longer call me Baali, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. In that day, I will also make a covenant for them with the beast of the field, birds of the sky and creeping things on the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword and war from the land and will make them lie down in safety." I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and then you will know the Lord. It will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, to the new wine, and to the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will so her for myself in the land, I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion, and I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. So in verses 2 to 13, we see the condemning evidence of Israel's idolatry and the divine pronouncement of judgment, so severe and so bleak the picture that, again, we might assume that there's no hope for Israel. But in verse 14, we are jolted once again by God's gracious dealings with them. That, that although his, his love was so grossly spurned, yet the Lord expresses again His desire to pursue a new courtship of His people. So you'll notice, that, I mean, even the, again, the very beginning here in verse 14, the word therefore, which really functions as, uh, in this context, as more of a, you could almost translate that nevertheless, right? So it's not just therefore sort of continuing the, the idea, but it's really, again, it's, it's really used in a, in a contrasting way. So God has just, if you will, nailed Israel to the wall for, for her idolatry and regarding her infidelity, but then notice what he promises to do. He says, behold, I will allure her bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. Now, it's an interesting term. The word allure, um, it has a, a, a pretty broad range of meaning. It can be, in some contexts, simply it's translated as the word persuade. Uh, in other contexts, it is translated as the word seduce. So... Um, For example, you could see that in Exodus chapter 22, verse 16. It's used in a sort of the idea of of seduction. 
So it can be used in contexts where it's a it's being used to describe a sinful thing, right? This sort of seducing someone through uh, through some form of deception. But in some cases, it's it doesn't have that negative connotation. It just means to strongly persuade, but in such a way that again it can be used in this other this other even uh, negative way. So we see it there in Exodus twenty two sixteen used in the ne- in a negative way. Uh, interestingly, Jeremiah even accused God at one point of doing this to him and calling him into prophetic ministry. So he's sort of like complaining that God seduced him into doing this, right? So he actually says this in Jeremiah 20, verse 7, O Lord, you have deceived me, and the word there is this word. So he's using it again in that sort of accusing God of, you didn't you, you didn't tell me <laughs> exactly how this was going to, to pan out. So he says, O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You have overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long, and everyone mocks me. So it, it's all that to say it's a risky word to use, um, but, but, but a very vivid picture, right? God promises to allure her, and I would say this, in marriage... There is a place for a good kind of seduction. And that's what we have going back. In other words, you, there's this, this um, if you will, a, a drawing back. Where the, the, the idea here is that God is, is persuading her to, to return, right, to come back. There's this rekindling of warmth in the relationship that has gone through difficult times. I see this, again, on a horizontal level, human level, we see this a lot in, in, in a lot of the marriage counseling that we do, right? I mean, you've got uh, a, a pretty poor relationship there, but then sometimes it just takes one of those two people determining that they're going to do this right here, right? I'm going to allure them. I'm going to, I'm going to do some things. I'm going to, as it says next, say some things, right, that are going to uh, rekindle this relationship, Okay? This is what God will do with His people. He, he commits to, and maybe a good word here is to wooing her back, right? He commits to wooing her back to Himself as her only true faithful husband. And so He, he promises to His unfaithful wife to bring her into the wilderness. This, is a, this would be a, a place where uh, Israel, if you think about the wilderness... Right again, going back into dipping back into Israel's history, the the Israel or the uh, the wilderness experience in the life of Israel was a place in which they were taught to trust God. Right, uh, you would think that wouldn't be that difficult, right? After being just delivered, being delivered miraculously uh, from bondage in Egypt, but they struggled with this, right? And so God, through a series of testings and, and experiences and situations is trying to teach Israel this lesson of total trust and total dependency, right? Which is needed for relationships, right? I mean, we need intimacy. We need trust to be present in, in relationships. And so the Lord promises to take His unfaithful wife to bring her into the wilderness, that place where she was taught to trust and to depend on the Lord for, alone for everything that she needed, and to speak, he says, kindly to her. Interesting phrase. It could be, what literally says, to speak upon her heart. 
okay? So we're talking about touching her at an affection level, okay? So, so we're, getting, we're talking about words that, that, that connect with affections, desires, um, uh, inclinations, plans, and purposes, right? That's the way that God communicates with his people, Okay, and you know this to be true, folks. I mean, this is where the Lord speaks to us, right? He addresses us on that level of desires. He addresses us that on that level of affection uh, and, and direction and purpose, motivations, you might say. Uh, this is what Boaz did to Ruth. You can find this over in Ruth chapter 2, verse 13. It's this, the very same word. T- uh, speaking words upon her heart, addressing the heart, aiming at the heart. This is actually how the message of comfort will come to Jerusalem. You see this in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 2. Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your, your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. That's our phrase, speaking kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. Right again, so this comfort is coming, forgiveness is coming, pardon is coming. Right? These are the kinds of things that would speak to a person's heart, right? That's in sin, right? I mean, a person that's been chasing lovers and going after idolatry, this is the way in which God woos us back, right? He does that through circumstances. He takes us into things, right, to teach us those lessons, to sometimes He strips us down, and then He speaks words upon our heart. Just interesting to see how how Hosea describes this. And again, I would just say, if you bring that down to where we are in relationships, especially for some of you who are married or maybe even with your, your, your children, if you have children, but I'm just saying the ability to speak upon people's hearts, the ability to address things that will get the relationship going in the right direction, right? Not just barking out things, not just being, you know, this and that and, and all that. It's, this is about taking someone back to a time when things were so much better than where they are at the present, right? A lot of applications for us here, I think, in that. So this is covenant faithfulness on God's part in order to keep the door of hope open, right? To welcome her back, to forgive, even to, say, even to seduce her back. It's, it's this idea of, of, of tenderness, tender words, uh, appealing to her and working on her heart. And then we find this in verse 15. Then I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Accor as a door of hope. And she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. So uh, his wife has hurt him tremendously, deeply deserting him and having affairs with rival after rival, and yet he takes her back with loving tenderness. And you notice this reversal, all right? In verse 12, if you look back at verse 12, this is from last week, Yahweh said that he would destroy her vines and her fig trees, but eventually, here it says that he will give her vineyards back to her, and he will make the valley of a core, which we translated the, a place of trouble, uh, or a, it's, it, it speaks to tr- trouble or disturbance. So it's a, the Valley of Trouble, which, by the way, was located 
near Jericho, right? This is where, again, you go back to, into your Old Testament history. This is, this is located near Jericho where Achan and his family were judged in Joshua chapter 7. So you might, you might be familiar with that account of, of, of a time when Israel was entering into the land of Canaan in the days of Joshua. And through faith, the Lord had given a great victory over Jericho to the Israelites. But Achan had taken uh, of the, 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 what was accursed, the, the, the loot of the city that they were not to, to, to take, it had been strictly forbidden by God, Achan uh, took that, and as a result of that sin, there was this defeat of Israel at their next battle, the, the, the city of Ai. So the Lord exposes all of this, and after Achan, of course, Achan is judged, uh, and after that, his, him and his house had been found out and stoned. Only then did the Lord give success to their battle at Ai. So the, I think that I think the, the imagery here is that Achan's disobedience was turned into blessing because that opened up uh, this victory, if you will, um, at the at the at the city of Ai. But only after Achan's sin had been dealt with. Dealt with. So it's a reference to a place and a time of discipline and judgment, a place and time where sin was owned and dealt with in truth. And Hosea says that Yahweh will make the valley of Akur into a door of hope, that the, that the troubles and the trials will lead to hope as Israel owns her sin and deals with it. But the Lord is not going, I think it was, God is not going to give Israel the victory at Ai until they deal with the sin. <laughs> So they go there, they try to have victory, but there's this sin they haven't has not been discovered and dealt with, and so God prevents the victory. He's like, you gotta, we got to deal with this, right? And then I'll do this. And I think what Hosea is doing is playing off of this to simply say, God is going to fulfill His promises to His people in the future, but He's not going to do this until Israel deals with their sin. They've got to own their sin, they have to deal with that and, and respond to it. And in that place, she will answer and respond or sing as in the days of her youth. This is what it says here in verse 16, that it will come about or come, up, come to pass in that day. You'll notice if you go through here, if you're a person that likes to mark in your Bible, just in that day, in that day, in that day, right? So these are things that are saying that these are out there. This is going to happen out there. In that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi and will no longer call me Ba'ali. Now, the word Ishi means my husband, and some of your translations may not even have the Hebrew uh, term there. It just may say my husband. Ba'ali is, is be translated my Ba'al, or it's actually a word that was used more generically for ruler or master. So it's just saying that rather than simply relating to the Lord as, as master, you'll also relate to him as husband. So it's just emphasizing the, the idea of affection and intimacy, not simply rulership, right? Does God rule and reign over that? Yes, he, st- he does that. But what Israel's not experiencing <laughs> when they're out there and they're, and they're chasing all of these uh, idols is 
they are not experiencing that closeness for sure in their relationship. God is in control. God is ruling. God can bring the discipline, right? He has the ability to do that, to bring the consequences. He's the one in the courtroom setting that's bringing the, the evidence against Israel. He's the one that's laying out the indictments against Israel. But the, but the intimacy is not there, right? It's, it's not, that's not, when you read those, the first part of chapter 2, that's not what, you don't get the warm fuzzies about this, right? But there will be a time when they will say, refer to the Lord, call him my husband. And notice, God is the one initiating. God is the one who is initiating this. God is the one who is enabling the change. He is the one, again, that is moving upon their hearts, bringing this transformation. Verse 17, For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, so that they will be mentioned by their names no more, or as the ESV says, and they shall be remembered by name no more. Again, this takes us back to when God revealed himself to Moses and called Moses to go before Pharaoh. This is back, and we mentioned this, this is sort of that, the, the, the episode of the burning bush and Moses being commissioned, but this is back in Exodus chapter 3. Uh, verse 9 of that passage says, Now behold the cry, this is the Lord, Now behold the, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that, that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said... Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And then notice how this says at the very end of verse 15, This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. So it is, the only, it is the one and only true God who bears the name to be remembered. The memorial name, Yahweh. And the Lord will step in, Hosea says, to do away with any, any remembrance of these other gods, right? These other idols. They, there will be no remembrance. You won't remember them. You won't remember their name. Their name will perish their Memory, the memory of them will be taken from Israel because God is going to do away with any form of syncretistic or polytheistic so called worship. Then, verse 18, this is back in Hosea. In that day, again, in that day, I will also make a covenant for them with the beast of the field, the birds of the sky, creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and will make them lie down in safety. So the Lord will make a covenant with all the creatures that He had originally placed under the vice regency of man in the beginning. All the way back to Genesis 
chapter 1, mercifully uh, neutralizing the consequences of the judgments mentioned in the last part of verse 12. And you'll look back at verse 12 from last week. When God promised, He says, I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. So through this covenant, the Lord will establish peace, abolishing all uh, human warfare, which clearly depicts, and we'll unfold this as we go on in the book, but I think clearly depicts a millennial scene when God's people become subject to Him and creation becomes subject to them. We see this in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, and He speaking of Yahweh, will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and the, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. It goes on in Isaiah eleven six, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the, lo- the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then God pledges His marital fidelity to Israel in spite of her gross infidelity, essentially stating that he will take Israel to be his wife and that she will no longer be thought of as a prostitute. So it's whatever you want to call this, it's, it's as if, I mean, we, we don't find in this particular passage, we'll actually talk a little bit, probably get into this a little bit more next time, but what's going on here in this relationship is, is he, he's is putting her away or she's she has gone away or... Uh, Has he divorced her, or is there just essentially a divorce that takes place simply because she has been unfaithful? Uh, All of those things, but it's as if, again, the way that the Lord is relating to Israel at this point, at the minimum, you would say it's it's like a renewal of of vows. It says he's he's talking about this renewal as if he's going to take her to be his wife, although up to this point, that language has already been Use. That's the way that their relationship has been described. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And then again, this is a, a significant difference, right? Then you will know the Lord. That is to say, in the future, the Lord's gracious actions as the initiator, will finally have an effect on a previously apostate people. And they will know Yahweh. Or you, or you can say that they, they will acknowledge Him as the great I Am of Exodus 3, but in the new covenant setting of Jeremiah 31. that says this, Jeremiah 31, 34, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast, as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. 
In those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So again, we'll come back. We'll have to, we'll we'll inevitably uh, come back to the the whole concept of of the new covenant. Uh, Back to Hosea 2, 21, verse 21. It will come about in that day that I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain and to the new wine and to the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. Now, remember what I said last time about these, these agrarian societies, these, uh, these agricultural uh, societies, and how in the, in that, in the ancient Near Eastern uh, context that these societies would often seek out fertility gods in, in hopes of, of blessing and prosperity, especially as it related to bountiful crops. And this was likely a significant factor in Israel's apostasy uh, from the Lord. But here we're reminded that it is the Lord alone who controls nature and blesses crops. And notice the final phrase, they will respond to Jezreel. This is again Hosea bringing back the name of Hosea and Gomer's first child. So on one hand... It means he scatters. Remember, we talked about this, that when it's used in chapter 1, it's used in that sense of of scattering or dispersing something, which is what's going to take place with the nation. Assyria is going to come. Israel is not going to repent. The Lord's going to bring Assyria as a form of, of, uh, of discipline and judgment. So he will scatter the people, but this is saying there will be a time when God, and he picks up this very same term, but it can also be translated as sowing something, as as scattering seed or planting seed into the ground. And in this case, in chapter 2, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the, what he's getting at here. So in judgment, God is going to scatter or disperse his people into captivities, as he would soon do, but in mercy, he would also in the future sow, in the sense of planting, sow them back into the promised land. Verse 23, I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion, and I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. So God not only brings back into picture Hosea and Gomer's first child, but their other two children as well. So we have again this back reference back to chapter, this low Ruhamah, this low Ami, no compassion, uh, not my people, and saying 
that this, this is going to, again, there's going to be this dramatic reversal because I will have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. So this is a future reversal of God's judgment. Mercy comes and the severed relationship is reestablished in the future. An intimate relationship, they belonging to him and he belonging to them. So you think about this just in comparison to the first half of chapter 2, right? In the first half of this chapter, Hosea prophesied of the painful but ultimately gracious hindrances that the Lord would place between Israel and her chronic idolatry. And he further explained that the final purpose of these hindrances and obstacles was to bring the nation back to himself. And then now here in the second half of the chapter, Hosea details the success of that intended reconciliation. And though the stated goal of his judgments was for the nation to cry out, I will go back, it is really Yahweh who takes the initiative. He is the one who's doing this. He is the one who's removing these things out of their mouth, right? He is the one that is speaking on a level that is getting at her heart, right? She's not only she's not just hearing it here, she's hearing it here, right? He's, he is the one who's powerfully able to convey this and to communicate at that level. Yahweh is the one who takes the initiative. He doesn't, call, he doesn't wait for Israel to call. Rather, he takes steps to bring about that reunion. You think about what they deserved. And then you consider all that the Lord does to woo them. And you consider all that he vows to do in the end to bring prosperity, to transform the place of shame and calamity into a door of hope, to remove every remnant of idolatry, to establish temporal security, right? He, he makes them. <laughs> Again, there's, there's still sovereign rule, right? But, but there's also intimacy, right? So he is making them to lie down in safety, Reestablishing so to this to this level of detail a military peace to reverse the nation's spiritual status reflected in the names of Hosea and Gomer's children. Say what a relief! I mean, what what a relief for the people of God to learn that they still belonged to Him, and long before. They were anywhere close to repenting. God promises to rekindle the relationship on his own accord. Why does he do that? Because God will not renege on the covenant that he made with his chosen people way back in Genesis 12. He will not do it. Think of it this way. Israel brings nothing to the marriage. And God makes all the promises and provides all the dowry. This is the Lord's doing. This is what we refer to sometimes as sovereign grace, sovereign mercy. Now keep in mind that the fulfillment of these future blessings and restoration in some measure were bestowed on Israel following their return from exile. But details of what he talks about here, the that day, 
are clearly not going to be completely fulfilled until the millennial kingdom. So, so God makes the first move and, and will make the first move. And if there is any reconciliation, whether it's between the Lord and Israel or, for that matter, between the Lord and you or the Lord and me, it will always be a result of His initiation. The writers of the New Testament sort of package this for us in a very clear and concise way, like 1 John chapter 4. Right? In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 19, we love because He first loved us. In fact, it's interesting that both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul quote from this passage in Hosea to demonstrate that New Testament Christians are also the recipients of this mercy of God. So if you think about this, our, our, our destiny has been reversed, right? Our destinies have been reversed. Our lives have been changed. The way in which God deals with Israel is similar to the way in which He deals with us, right? Our lives have been changed, but it's, they've been changed because of His powerful and merciful initiative. Notice this, this is, a, again, this is Peter's use of this passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who's called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You, have not, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Over in Romans chapter 9, uh, Pastor Shane covered this back in our Romans series. Uh, this, uh, this question comes, Paul's addressing these what would be uh, objections to God's dealings. And verse 14 of Romans 9, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So what's the the point Paul's making is, listen, God does whatever He pleases, right? God, if God extended mercy because of something that He saw in us, it wouldn't be mercy. It would kind kind of make the whole point of mercy sort of invalid. So he goes on, he says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom He also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles, as he also says in Hosea, and here's his reference, I will call those who were not my people my people, 
and her who was not beloved, beloved. This is from Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. Verse 26, And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. That first part there taken from Hosea chapter 1, verse 10. So this goes to, this I think leads us to a question that we talked about the very first week when we started this series, talking about the old, importance of studying the Old Testament and then how to sort of, some guidelines for how to study the Old Testament. Sort of t- testing that out a little bit. So a question that, that comes to mind is that if in their original context, so if in the context, the one in Hosea, these verses speak of God's restoration of ethnic Israel in the last days, why does Paul quote them in reference to the Lord calling vessels of mercy from among the Gentiles in the present age? Is Paul spiritualizing, or we might say reinterpreting, the Hosea passages and providing their true and proper meaning? And I would say that's not what Paul is doing. Um, Hosea's audience... I think, would have understood that the clear and unmistakable antecedent to the, the people that are mentioned in Hosea, that those people in question were the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of ethnic Israel. That is to say, there was no other possible meaning available to them. Okay, So it's like, if you don't understand what... If, 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 if Israel does not understand the the... The, the, these, the, the prophecy that Hosea is giving here, then it doesn't... What's, what's the point? It's like it kind of it loses its punch, right? Unless they're assuming that he's talking about them, right? Not something that's going to take their place. And so that, that really is the only thing that they would have understood. That's part of it, okay? So particularly in Romans... The question is, what is the Apostle Paul doing with these Old Testament passages? And I would say this. Paul is simply drawing a comparison, or we might say an analogy, between the calling of Gentiles from unbelief and the restoration of Israel from exile and judgment. In other words, he's drawing a parallel between the future restoration of the Jews and the present salvation of the Gentiles for the purpose of highlighting what theme? In other words, this, this passage is really highlighting one thing, and it's highlighting the mercy of God, right? That that's what Paul's doing here. He's, he is drawing this analogy in order to highlight the gracious, graciousness of God toward those who have no claim on God's mercy. That's the common denominator. That's the connection that Paul makes, is that this this activity of God among the Jewish people, it's all because of God's mercy, right? And He will do these things for them in the future. Why? Because He's merciful. And then this whole idea of God calling Gentiles to salvation, why does God do that? Because He's merciful, right? He's merciful. So Paul's not reinterpreting these verses in Hosea, He is underscoring a point of continuity between these two distinct situations without equating them or suggesting that one fulfills the prediction of the other. And that point of continuity is the mercy of God toward those who are not His people and the calling of God to make them 
His people. That is to say, while applying the promises of Israel's restoration to Gentiles, He doesn't intend to include Gentiles in His concept of Israel. Rather, to explain something that is true of both the future restoration of Israel and the present salvation of Gentiles. And the apostles, both Paul's and Peter's application of Old Testament promises to the church, does not in any way cancel the reality of a literal and future fulfillment for the nation of Israel as well. So this this is clear. God's loving initiative and His infinite wisdom to know exactly what it takes to soften the hearts of stubborn sinners and His unstoppable power to chasten and to correct in such a way that it actually produces an ability and a readiness on the part of the sinner to see, to receive, and to return to the faithful love of God. That part's clear, right? I mean, that is what pops when you go through chapter 2 of Hosea, is that God is the one who's wise, God is the one who's unstoppable, God is the one who is initiating, God is the one who is showing mercy. And what is also clear is Israel's future reciprocating of God's faithful love. She will sing, verse 15 says. Her worship will be purified, right? The the, the names of the Baals, Baals will be gone. She will call the Lord my husband, and she will truly know the Lord. So I just say, folks, praise God, praise God for the things that God does and the circumstances that He brings to accomplish His redeeming and sanctifying purposes in our lives. This is all about God. I mean, God's putting obstacles and hindrances and all this. And it, this, is, this is all working out exactly as He wants it to work out. And He knows how to bring the transformation in the end. He is the one who is going to, as I said, these things are going to be written upon their hearts. They are going to know the Lord He is going to be their God. They are going to be His people. And I'm saying in that sort of continuity idea, there are things about the way God is dealing with Israel that are so applicable to us as as believers. And that is that we've been shown mercy, right? And God knows, folks, when we sin, getting down to just a very personal, individual level, God knows how to humble us. He knows how to expose the sin. He knows how to... He knows how to woo us back, right? So that we just don't go off the cliff, right? And just out of despair and despondency, say it can't. It's it has to be over. It has to be over. No, no, it's not. In fact, Richard Sibbs in the Bruised Reed writes this. He said, "God by His Spirit convinces us deeply, setting our sins before us and driving us to a standstill. Then we will cry out for mercy." Conviction will breed contrition, and this leads to humiliation. Therefore, desire God that He would bring a clear and strong light into all the corners of our souls and accompany it with a spirit of power to lay our hearts low. It's like that's our prayer, right? That's our prayer. Our prayer is that, Lord, bring a clear and strong light into every corner of our souls because the Lord knows our souls. He knows our hearts. Bring a light and not only that, but accompany that light with a spirit of power to lay our hearts low, right? Don't just expose what's there, but just bring us to a place of brokenness. 
Bring us to a place of restoration, reconciliation. So irrevocable love, right? Every trial will refine our faith. Every pain will draw us to Christ. Every trial will wean us from self and pride. So chapter 2 sets the pattern for the contents of the rest of the book. The judgment speech against Israel's apostasy in verses 2 to 13 reflects the doom which so frequently characterizes chapters 4 through 13. We're going to see this again. These are going to be cycles of, of this throughout the book. While the announcement of reconciliation in verses 14 to 23 prepares for the other oracles of hope found particularly in chapter 3, as we'll see next time, and particularly in chapter 11 and chapter 14. So that's sort of, in fact, some would say chapter 2 really is the outlet. It's, it's kind of like it's, it's, the, it's the smaller, it's the thumbnail sketch of what's to come because we're going to be seeing both those sides of doom and hope, doom and hope, judgment and hope, judgment, reconciliation. Now, well, I'll skip that. I'll come back to that. I, there, there's a, there is one application here for that I, we have to touch on, but I'll just talk about that. We'll, we'll get into that before we uh, start next time. So, okay, so that's all. We'll stop there, let you guys go. We'll pick up with, uh, with that and with Chapter 3. Uh, Lord willing, next week. All right, folks, thank you for your time.